Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. And you can be seated. Uh, Good morning, everybody. Good to see you here. Good morning to those of you in our church family who have not yet been able to or have chosen to not yet uh, assemble with us. We miss you like crazy, but uh, hope that you are tuning in from home. Everybody wave at the people watching from home today. And to those of you visitors uh, who are here with us in person or visiting online as well, good to have you with us. Last week, uh, Neil and Danette Childs were here. Wasn't that outstanding? Isn't it always great to hear from Neil and Danette from Africa? Uh, we had a wonderful time hanging. We hung out with them all afternoon and well into the evening, just catching up on each other's lives. And uh, I just wanted to report to you that thanks to your continued faithful support and your generosity last week, we were able to give them $8,000 plus, plus $500 for the books. So they were, they were blessed. They are always just blown away at your, at your generosity and what a, what, just what a great relationship we enjoy with them. huh? And I want to remind you, of something that Neil said as kind of a springboard into today's message. Um, you, re- you may remember that uh, two weeks ago, we started a look at the book of Hebrews, and it's not going to be a verse-by-verse study. The, the name of this series or, uh, of messages is called Stay the Course, and it's based on this letter. And uh, Hebrews is, among other things, I'm finding that the thread that runs through this letter is uh, a long warning against backsliding or drifting away. And Neil shared something last week, I think you remember, where he had, they had just completed, and this goes back years ago, uh, they had just finished up what had been by far their greatest year of ministry up to that point. Do you remember this? He was talking about how they'd been, in, they'd been able to establish churches and had some great meetings. They had a huge ministry come and visit them and minister through them. And, then the, and they were just riding high, and then the next year was like, Disaster after disaster. Their oldest son was nearly killed in a motorcycle accident. Tanika lost her vision, and it was one thing after another. And it was, you know, clearly the work of the enemy trying to derail them, get them off the mission field, out of the ministry, but they didn't cave. They stayed the course, and they continued to. And this is kind of one of the things that we're going to be building up to, uh, is that we won't address it much today, but some of the suffering that our brothers and sisters throughout the world and throughout history have endured uh, without drifting away, and yet how many people in our culture who aren't enduring what I would ever qualify as genuine suffering do drift away, and why is that? Therefore, uh, we will look again here shortly uh, at that. Let me, let me back up and uh, review just a little bit. I made my case last uh, two weeks ago. I spent maybe too much time <laughs> making my case for why I believe Paul is probably the best candidate uh, for authorship of the book of Hebrews. There is not widespread agreement on who wrote it, and Paul is largely considered not the author of Hebrews, but no, not too many people are saying he's absolutely not. I think he is, and uh, if you're interested, you can go back and listen to that. But... Um, it doesn't matter. Remember, it doesn't matter. I, I just remind you of that because more than likely at some point I will say, and then Paul says, 
And I'm just saying that by habit because I'm convinced he did. Uh, so if you hear me say that, don't go reporting me to the heresy board. I'm not saying that on purpose to try to convince you. I'm saying it because I'm more or less convinced, all right? The rest of the message, though, was about remembering what brought us individually to the point of repentance, to the point of committing our lives to Christ. When did we become a Christian and why? What brought us to the point of that decision? And Hebrews begins with this powerful passage pointing out that Christ, that Jesus Christ is Lord and God, greater than the angels, greater uh, than the law. And uh, he's drawing on many Old Testament passages. There's a lot of the Old Testament in Psalms and in the prophets, particularly that uh, the author works into this letter. And so let's look again here at chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Uh, because after he makes this case that Jesus is greater than the angels, uh, he says, uh, therefore, Hebrews 2, 1, therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Spirit according to his own will. So it's kind of like you didn't just stumble across a philosophy that appealed to you when you became a Christian. That's not what happened. God saved you. Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus, God the Son, saved you. And you've had great respect for the law and have had over all these years. And you've remained loyal to that. Jesus is greater than the law, greater than the angels that are referred to in the law, greater than the angels that were used to deliver the law. So don't drift away. Don't neglect this salvation, which is much greater than the law you have remained loyal to over all these years. And then we looked at why people do drift away. This is still review. I spoke of how there's this particular danger, strange as it might seem, to those who were raised in the faith, who have their beliefs challenged for the first time, and might erroneously conclude that since they did not uh, arrive at their belief on their own, that it is somehow not legitimate. Uh, but we as we discussed, that really doesn't hold water because most of the things we know and believe are things that we were taught, right? It's a, a little bit silly uh, to say that, well, since I didn't, uh, so I, I, I believe in Jesus because I was raised to believe in Jesus, and therefore, uh, when somebody asks me, why do you believe in Jesus, that's not a very good reason, so I'll stop believing in Jesus. Why don't we look at why the people who taught you to believe in Jesus believe in Jesus and get to the roots of those reasons? Let, before I move on, uh, because, again, this is all review. I want to kind of develop that just a little bit. In Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse, 13, uh, in verse 13, Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate, and difficult, or straight, or narrow, is probably a better translation, is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. Now, the narrow gate, that's an easy pill to swallow because we know that's talking about Jesus himself. Jesus is saying, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. You don't get to God except through this door, Jesus. And we're all okay with that. The part that's, that's troubling about that passage, to me anyway, is the, 
there are few who find it. Well, how few? How few? I mean, uh, are we talking, if it's relatively few, and if we're talking out of billions and billions and billions of people down through history, then maybe one billion or two billion is few. But few, why are there few who find it? Uh, How rare is it to find Jesus and enter onto that narrow way that leads to life? Well, let me ask you this question. How many of you found Jesus on your own? How many of you were introduced to him? Yeah. Most of us met Jesus the way we meet other people, right? We we were introduced. Um, You've probably heard, and I've shared a little bit, uh, I don't know a whole lot about it, but I've I've heard many, many stories, and I I hope you have too, about how people, uh, particularly in Muslim countries, but you see this in other areas of the world that are traditionally hostile to the gospel, where people actually do encounter the risen Christ in a vision or a dream and come to embrace Christianity as a result of a direct encounter with God. But that is not the norm, is it? Most people who embrace Christ, embrace Christianity, do so because of somebody fulfilling the Great Commission. Somebody has done what Jesus said to do, gone out into the world and preached the gospel, and eventually they preached it to you. Right? Uh, This is actually the... um, And and by the way, (laughs) the Great Commission isn't just preach the gospel from the pulpit. It's preaching it at the back fence, in the coffee shop, in the break room, and at school, right? Uh, and if we do that, it, it really is the, when, when Jesus says, this is my take on that passage anyway, there are few who find it, that is a way of emphasizing the importance of the Great Commission. Since very few people are going to stumble across this, it is the exception to simply encounter Jesus in a dream and a vision. Therefore, if people are going to to uh, go through that door, it's not going to be because they found it, it's going to be because you showed it to them. It doesn't necessarily mean that only few will be saved, it just means that most people who get saved need to be shown the door. That's our job with the Great Commission, amen? Now, uh, I continued then last week or two weeks ago by sharing an experience that I had, and uh, when I experienced my first real doubt about Christianity. And I shared that it was while I was in a state of disobedience and about how when we get comfortable with sin, that more often than not, that's what opens the door to doubt. I cannot think offhand of anyone who was pursuing God. I'm not saying it's never happened. I'm just saying I can't think of anybody offhand who was in the midst of pursuing God, living for him, living the gospel, and then was swayed by a philosophical argument into atheism. Usually doesn't happen that way. Uh, it's, and then, as a result of the philosophical switch, uh, then their lifestyle begins to deteriorate. It almost always works the other way around. We neglect our salvation. Our lifestyle deteriorates in terms of how it lines up with the words of God. And then we slide into actual unbelief. So, again, the author of Hebrews, God, through the author of Hebrews, starts with Jesus himself, 
Who is he? He is the eternal son, the Lord, the Savior, greater than the angels, greater than the law. If you drift away, you are not drifting away from an idea. You are not drifting away from a simple belief. You are drifting away from Jesus Christ, God the Son himself. And finally, in, in terms of review anyway, in chapter 2, the author quotes Psalm 8, uh, which is about man being made, it says in, in uh, New King James, a little lower than the angels. A better translation there is actually, as most of you know, a little lower than God. A little lower than Elohim, God. And, uh, and that all things have been put under his feet. And when it says his feet, that's your feet, my feet, man's feet. He's made all, put us all things in subjection to man. This is the order of creation. And then says, as he, after he quotes Psalm 8, he says, but now we do not yet see all things put under his feet. And this is one of the things that we get hung up on. Uh, because again, that's meaning us. We see where God has put the earth in subjection to man. He's put all things under our feet. And especially looking at this in terms of the New Testament, that we are seated with him in heavenly places. All things are under the feet of Jesus. We are in him, therefore all things are under our feet, right? And yet we look around the world, and it doesn't always look like that. Evil still triumphs in places. My prayers aren't being answered. Things look nasty, and it can be disheartening. We'll come back around to that again. Because this is the other reason some claim for walking away. It's not working. I read about victory. I'm not experiencing it. I see that I am to have dominion, that I'm the head and not the tail, all this. And I can't even get my prayers to be answered. And there are different answers to that. But again, what Hebrews starts with, and the one it focuses on, is that the way to combat that is to keep your eyes not on the world and how this seems to be working, but keeping your eyes on Jesus himself. Let's read it again, and then we'll move on. In Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 8, for in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things under him. And again, the him is us, it's mankind. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. In other words, Again, we don't yet see everything under our feet, but we do see Jesus, who was made, for a little while anyway, a little lower than God. And why? why was, in, in other words, when it says he was made a little lower than the angels, it doesn't mean that Jesus was created at all. It doesn't mean he was created lower than God or lower than the angels. It's that the eternal God, the Son, co-equal with God the Father, was for a little time made to be like man, a little lower than God. And what was the purpose? So that he might taste death for everyone. God, in his, God the Son, in his God state, cannot die. So he became a man so that he could. That's what that passage is saying. We don't yet... Uh, Again, we don't yet see the world as it ought to be, but we can see Jesus who was made to taste death for us. And now uh, the author of Hebrews moves in on what it is that really bothers people and causes this drifting away. Pick it up in verse 10. And this is uh, the longest passage we will read today. For it was fitting for him for whom all things and by whom are all things 
in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, meaning Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brethren. Verse 12, saying, and then he quotes uh, some more Old Testament, some more Psalms, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, uh, the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. These are all Old Testament quotes. Verse 14, inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death, he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. And there, if you look at the probably better translation, and I might start preaching out of a different translation, it really means take the form of angels, right? Uh, Therefore, verse 17, in all things he had to be made like his brethren, like us, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make a propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Now, again, there's a little bit to unpack here if we're going to dissect this verse by verse, but there's one point I want to draw out so Quickly addressing some of, some of these other things. Notice again how much of the Old Testament he's using. And this is aimed, again, at a Jewish audience. Hebrews, he's writing a letter to Jews. Mostly Christian Jews, but as I mentioned in the intro, there's certainly an evangelistic aspect to this. Written to those who are as yet unconverted. He's using the law that they know, the law that they love and trust, to point them to Christ and remind them that Jesus himself is at the center of all of those writings. Next point is that Jesus did not remain aloof in his saving work, that he is able to be a compassionate intercessor, a merciful high priest, because he took on flesh and blood and walked this earth and experienced temptation and even death as a man. He suffered as a man and faced man's greatest fear, which is what? The fear of death. Now, Seinfeld made a great joke years ago that uh, they did a poll of uh, greatest fears. You know, some people are afraid of spiders, heights, and that uh, the greatest fear, that most, the most common fear people had was actually, anybody know? Public speaking. Number two was death. And so the joke was that most people, if they're at a funeral, would rather be in the casket than delivering the eulogy. <laughs> but while that might have shown up that way on the poll, most people really don't feel like that. Right? You'd rather be alive than dead, most people, most of the time. And this might be as far as we make it this morning, this, this idea of looking at the fear of death because it's interesting that Paul, that the author of Hebrews mentions that uh, he destroyed him who had the power of death because it was not that death kept people in bondage. What kept people in bondage? The fear of death, right? And bondage to what? 
Bondage to sin. That's what has us bound, correct? Now, uh, he's going to spend some time developing this picture of Jesus as the perfect high priest, comparing him to Moses, comparing him to the, the Levitic line, uh, the, the Levites, and comparing him finally to Melchizedek. And on the surface, as you read the, the headings and stuff, this might not look like the most gripping reading. Uh, I don't want to read about the priesthood, Melchizedek. I barely even know who Melchizedek is. Uh, but actually, in the context of this whole letter, it's actually quite exciting indeed. It's, it's worth reading. And I encourage you to read ahead on this stuff, by the way. Because as God explains through this author, all these priestly duties are ultimately centered on what? Sacrifices, offering of animals, and the shedding of blood for the remission of sin. And Jesus Christ, the perfect high priest, made the perfect and final sacrifice once and for all. And why? We just read it. To destroy him who had the power of death and to release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Now, the fear of death, fear itself, is a kind of bondage all on its own, isn't it? Fear keeps us from enjoying life, keeps us from making important decisions, keeps us from being honest and committed in our relationships and so on. But fear of death, it says here, made us subject to bondage. And we talk about the saving power of Christ. It's important to remember, even as we preach the gospel, that we are not just talking about being freed from hell, which can be seen as the punishment for our sin, being kept out of the presence of God, but actually delivered from what? Sin itself. This is what Christ promises the believer with the new birth. It's the saving power from sin. Some of the most encouraging, you know this, and some of you have a testimony like this, some of the most encouraging and exciting testimonies come from people who were wrapped up in some truly vile and violent lifestyles, and then they testify that God delivered them from what? Hell? No, from these habits and these lifestyles and these, and these mindsets, and they truly became a different person. One of the most humble believers I've ever known, uh, and, a, and a, a Christian leader, he's a brilliant man, but very, very soft-spoken, and he shared with me, shared with a group of us on a missions trip that, uh, sh- that his habit, and this made us laugh because none of us could picture this, but he said one of the worst habits he had was he cussed all the time. His vocabulary was just full of swear words. And uh, then he got saved, and a, little, a few days later, he's working out at, at his workbench, and he smashes his thumb with a hammer and goes, ow! And at that moment, he realized that Jesus Christ had changed him. <laughs> See what I'm saying? Because all he said was, ow. All right? And he knew that this was so, this was a transformative moment for him because he knew what his, his mouth was normally going to be full of, and it didn't even occur to him to swear in that moment. But how does the fear of death keep us in bondage? I want to suggest one possible way, and I believe this letter to the Hebrews recognizes this and addresses it. Uh, Many of you have heard this quote that G.K. Chesterton gave. He said, The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. Again, most people 
who leave the faith or reject it in the first place do so not because of philosophical arguments, but because they are unwilling to change. They're unwilling to make sacrifices in terms of their pursuits and their lifestyles. Um, as I mentioned last week, um, the declarations of atheism are usually based on what we want to do. I want to live like this, but if I accept that Christianity is true, I know I cannot live like this. So then the question becomes not, is Christianity true, but do I want to believe in it? And you got the rare guy like Huxley, who I quoted a couple times recently, who basically just came out and said, I want this world not to make sense. I don't want there to be a moral law, because as long as God doesn't exist, as long as the law doesn't exist, I can pursue my own erotic desires. Most people aren't that honest. So what we do, without maybe even grappling with it consciously, many people will simply reject the claims of Christ because it's easier not to think about them because they've already made up their minds how they want to live, what they want to do. We'll use our so-called belief as an excuse to live like we want. I was actually listening uh, and reading also something about a, a fairly famous comic, a comedian, who tends to use some pretty foul language and push certain boundaries in his comedy. But he says he does believe the Bible, says he is a Christ, considers himself a Christian, but he's simply unwilling to let those beliefs alter his act. He enjoys what he's doing, and he even as he knows it's wrong. It's kind of a puzzle, but there's another level of honesty. At least he's not saying, well, I want to I do this kind of comedy, so I'm just not going to believe in God. It's like he just continues to pursue something, and uh, it's dangerous. It's just, I'm not recommending it, you understand, and I pray for him. Uh, but it's, uh, it's kind of... It's another level of honesty, but going the different direction from Huxley. Anyway, anyway, what does this have to do with fear of death? We are all going to die. Sorry. Uh, the children in here who maybe it's like staying uh, something about, uh, well, never mind, never mind. I won't say anything about that either. But it, that's spoiler, okay? We're, we're all going to die. And the older we get, I hear, the older we get, the more we realize that life is not that long. So, the mortal man, without regard for eternity, might take a look at his life and say, I've never been anywhere. I've never done anything. I've never seen anything. I've never experienced so much or tasted so much what have I got to show? This life has so much to offer. And what, how much have I partaken of it? Anybody ever see the, the movie The Outsiders? Anybody remember that, that book or movie? I saw that again recently. It's maybe the original Brat Pack movie. I mean, it had everybody in it. At least look it up and look at, look at the, the cast sometime. You won't believe how many people were in that movie. And there's, uh, what's his name, Karate Kid? Ralph Macchio, is that his name? Macchio, I don't know. He, was, uh, he played Johnny, this tough little guy, but he's, he's very sensitive and he's very nervous. He had been attacked. He's one of the greasers, and he'd been beaten up by one of the socias, and, and so he was always very nervous. And at some point, uh, uh, just without re recounting the whole movie, he's in the hospital, 
in this scene because he had been uh, badly burned, uh, injured, rescuing some children from a church fire. And he's actually dying in the hospital. And he's, uh, he's 14, 15 years old in this movie. And he's saying to his friend, I used to want to die all the time. Because he did. He can't, his home life was terrible. He hated his life. And he's, I used to think about dying, used to think about killing myself. And now that I'm dying, I want to live. I'm too young to die. I wouldn't mind it if I'd just seen so many more things. But that week we spent out hiding from the cops in that church was the only time in my life I've been out of our neighborhood. Well, it's a sad, sad scene. Because then he's realizing it's not that he wants to do great things. He just wants to see the world. He wants to experience more life. This kind of thinking can actually creep into the believer's mind. Do you remember Pascal's wager? Pascal was actually a mathematician and a philosopher who basically put it like this. If I live my life as if Christ's claims are true and that there is an afterlife and there is a judgment to be faced, and if it turns out that I'm wrong, I've lost nothing. But if you live your life as if the Bible is true, that there is no afterlife and there is no judgment, and you turn out to be wrong, you've lost everything. But there is a twisted version of this. It's, it's kind of perverted, which goes something like this. You're going to embrace a faith that is going to make a lot of fun, exciting things off limits. If you're going to follow Christ, then there are certain things that you are going to have to rob yourself of. A lot of enjoyment you're going to miss out based on the unproved existence of God and judgment and eternal life. And then you die and you've experienced none of these wonderful things life has to offer. YOLO, baby. You only live once, so go for the gusto. Grab life by the horns. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Why deprive yourself of so much that life has to enjoy when there's really no reason to believe there's an afterlife? So we act in ways that are not of faith. When I sin, when you sin, we are choosing to disobey God because we are elevating our momentary desire over God's love for us. We are in a sense saying, what if God's word is not true and I forego this pleasure or this easy way out for nothing? Ecclesiastes chapter 9 verse 10 says this, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might for there is no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you are going. Ecclesiastes is a, is a great book to consider. The, the, it, it, written by Solomon in, in a very backslidden state. Where he's basically saying, squeeze all you can out of this life because this is all there is. The fear of death, rather than causing you to walk circumspectly before God and each other, uh, can actually drive you to further bondage to sin because if there is nothing beyond the grave, I must live for me today. I've got to squeeze everything I can out of this life because it's all there is. The sadness of this choice is, as the 
uh, as the preacher of Ecclesiastes finds out, the sadness of this is that it will not just lead to hell, eternally separated from God, but the sadness of this is that those who pursue this course ultimately find out that it does not satisfy even in the here and now. How many of you have been there and tried it? I'm not saying there's not momentary pleasure. I'm saying there's not lasting fulfillment, lasting joy. And Ecclesiastes is the absolute best illustration of that because here's somebody who wasn't limited in what he could pursue. He had all the money in the world. He had all the imagination in the world. Every opportunity let us absolutely explore the limits. Sex, drugs, rock and roll. Bring it all on. And what was his conclusion? Vanity. Chasing after the wind. It was also Pascal who wrote this, and many of you have heard this. There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the Creator made known through Jesus Christ. We try to satisfy our flesh, satisfy our desires, and fill that void with anything, with everything other than Jesus Christ, and we find out that it does not satisfy at all. I watched... Recently, again, Chariots of Fire. Remember that one? Best slow motion running outside of the $6 million man. And I was struck again at the stark differences between the two main characters, the runners, Eric Little and Harold Abrams. Uh, Eric Little, of course, was a, uh, raised on the mission field and was going back to the mission field in China. Meanwhile, he was back to train and run in the Olympics. Harold Abrams was a Jewish student who, with a chip on his shoulder, always had something to prove. And Abrams says in one scene as he's preparing for his last race, his last chance to medal in these Olympics, that he finds himself, as, he, as he's, he's describing how soon he'll be out there staring down his lane of this racetrack with, in his quote, I think, goes, with 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. This is how he defined the 100-meter dash. Not out there nervous, competing against the best in the world, but with 10 seconds to justify my whole existence. Versus what Eric Little said to his sister. God made me for a purpose, for China, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. That's a pretty centered way of looking at it, isn't it? Win or lose. He's running for, he's just feeling the pleasure of God when he runs. He knows his life's purpose is something beyond that racetrack. And after their respective races and their respective victories, we see that the emptiness still remains in Harold Abrams while Little goes off to fulfill his calling, dying on the mission fields of China. Ravi Zacharias will often re ha did R.I.P. Yeah, huge impact on me, and uh, he would he would often refer to this scene, but then he would go on to tell a, another story or two, and then wrap it up with this one of my all-time favorite Ravi quotes, where he says, "This the loneliest moment you will ever know is when you have just experienced that which you thought would deliver the ultimate, and it has let you down." When you pursue something, especially single-minded, 
without regard to anybody, without regard to God, because you are convinced this is the key to satisfaction. You invest your life, your energy, your gifts into this thing, and then you get there and find out, I've got it! Oh, no. It's not satisfying me. Do you understand that this is at the very heart of God's commandment to have no other God before me? It's not a how dare you have any God before me. It's you were made for me. I am the only one who can satisfy. If you put anything in my place, not only, it's not just a matter of going to hell. You will be in a perpetual state of dissatisfaction. Jesus, condescending to become a human being, as we read his life, we never get the idea, I don't, that he was anything other than fulfilled. Did you ever meet a more perfectly secure human being than the Jesus you meet in the pages of Scripture? A full man, satisfied in the fullest sense of the word. A man who enjoyed eating and drinking, but who said, man shall not live by bread alone. Who at one point, when the disciples asked him, did you find something to eat somewhere else? He said, my meat is to do the will of the one who sent me. This is what fulfilled him. Not something being placed in him, but giving. And he suffered and died. And we are going to read something absolutely life-changing about that experience right here in this book, in a week or two. Keep coming. And again, I encourage you to read ahead. But even though the author saves that passage for near the end of the letter, right here, near the beginning of it, he's reminding the readers that the captain of our salvation knows what it's like to be us, to carry death in our flesh because our flesh is mortal. He knows what it's like to be tempted, knows what physical pain is, what death itself is like, but... He did not fear death because he knew where he was going. And because he knew where he was going, he never yielded to temptation. There was never that moment of doubt for Jesus. He knew he wasn't missing out on the human experience because this human experience is nothing but a shadow, nothing but a taste, nothing but a hint of the glorious life to come. So what about you? And if you feel like you've wasted too much of your life looking for the next pleasure, for something better, a better experience? Are you trying to fill that void with anything but Jesus himself? Let me offer you this invitation in the form of a warning that appears in the very next passage of Hebrews. Very next chapter, rather. In, cha in Hebrews chapter 3, uh, actually beginning in verse 12, we read, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is still called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said, today, if you hear his voice, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. He'll go on to describe what he's talking about. I just would just like to say that today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. Do you need to make that decision? Stand up with me. We're, we're wrapping this up. 
Examine your life for a second. Is there something that's holding you back from committing your life to Christ, from accepting that free gift of salvation? What are you waiting on? Today, if you will hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Now is the accepted time. Two quick invitations, then I close with a prayer. Have you ever given your life to Christ? You actually don't give it to him. You recognize that he purchased it. You recognize that you're a sinner in need of salvation and that the only way that salvation was offered was through his shed blood and death on the cross. He tasted death for us to release us from death, to release us from the fear of death. But we have a decision to make, to look to the cross, to look to Jesus and say, thank you. You did that for me, and I needed you to do that for me. Come into my life. Be my Lord. If you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Second, and I think this, this is more likely to hit the mark in this room today. You know you made that decision. You gave your life to Jesus Christ. Last week, last month, last year, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. But lately, you're distracted by the pleasures that this world is offering. And you find yourself distracted, tired, depressed, angry, you find yourself experience a range, experiencing a range of emotions and feelings that if you're really honest, you realize if Christ is this fulfilling figure, if he's the one who fills the vacuum that ultimately is my greatest need, if all things have been put under my feet, I should not be weighed down so often or constantly by anger, depression, frustration, etc., I should be more satisfied. And then you take an honest look and you say, it's not that I'm not saved, it's that I'm neglecting my salvation. Jesus died for me and I need to decide right now, once and for all, that I'm going to live for him. It's one thing to say, I'm willing to die for him. Are you willing to live for him? That's what he's called you to do. Do you want to make a recommitment? Do you want to reconnect with the God who gave so much to save you? So first invitation. And I'm not going to have you come down here because we're still, we're still observing social distancing, but I'll pray with you right where you are. If you'll be bold enough to say, Scott, I'm not saved, and I need to be. I want to become a Christian today. Will you raise your hand? I want to dedicate my life, commit my life to Christ, and I recognize that he gave himself for me. Hope that means everybody in here is saved because I'm not seeing any hands. All right. Second part of that. I know I'm saved. I've never, I didn't come in here this morning and still throughout your sermon, I haven't really doubted my salvation. But I am not experiencing the fullness of my salvation and it's because I'm not giving myself fully to the one who saved me and I want to do that now. Do you want to make a fresh commitment to Christ this morning? There's one. There's two. There's three, four. I see several. Eight, thank you. Nine, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let me, let me lead us in a prayer. And thank you for your response. And if you didn't raise your hand and you still want to, 
uh, I would encourage us all to just pray this prayer. Uh, I'm not going to do the repeat after me. I'm going to pray this. You amen. That's your agreement. That's how you participate in this. That's how my prayer becomes your prayer, okay? Heavenly Father, you are a good God. And thank you for saving us. I pray right now, Lord, that if there's anybody in here who does need salvation, who hasn't ever committed their life to Christ, they've never made that decision to yield to you as Lord and accept that wonderful salvation, that you would convict them of their need for that right now. Cause them to cry out and save them in this, in, through their faith, through the finished work of Jesus Christ. For the rest of us, Lord, Thank you for the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, and thank you for this reminder that you have promised us an abundant life, that you have, will satisfy us, that you will fulfill us, that you have walked through this already ahead of us, and you promised to walk through it with us. Help us to find our rest and our satisfaction only in you. Forgive us for having wasted too much of our time, even as those who have been born again, who have been offered this new life and who have received this new life, forgive us for squandering so much of this precious gift of life in pursuits that do not satisfy and that do not advance the kingdom of God. Fill us afresh now, Lord, with your Holy Spirit. Receive us back to yourself. Fill our lives as we commit to you this morning in a fresh way to give our lives to you. You gave your life for us. We freely give ourselves to you to be used by you and ministered through you any way you see fit. At the same time, while Lord, there seems like sometimes there's an element of sacrifice, certainly there is. We also are determined to walk in a way that manifests your promise and your declaration that all things are under our feet because we are in Christ. Help us to walk not just obediently, Lord, but victoriously that while there is suffering to be endured because we are not above our master, yet we will walk in the specific promises you have made. We will walk in divine provision. We will walk in divine protection. We will walk in divine healing. And we will be ministers of those things as this world continues to darken. Thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the promises of your word. And thank you, Lord, for the very faith you have given us to believe and walk in those things. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. amen. Praise the Lord. You can be seated for a moment. And as I'll wrap this up, uh, dismiss you here by rows in just a moment. And as you leave, if you'd be kind enough to deposit your offering, your tithes and offerings in the designated basket out there, just one offering today. Uh, if you need, uh, should have had an envelope or something, if you need one for cash, raise your hand and Usher will get one to you. Otherwise, checks, of course, get made out to Living Word Family Church or simply LWFC. God, uh, God is a good provider. He's been good to us uh, even through these trying times. And uh, now is not the time to slack off in our obedience in any area, but that certainly includes honoring him with our finances. And I appreciate, again, the faithfulness that most of you have displayed through this, there is a great reward for every area of, of, our, of our obedience. And the, and the principles of uh, seed time and harvest certainly do apply uh, to honoring God with our finances. Give, and guess what? It will be given unto you. 
obey him in the tithe and offering, and guess what? He will test. He says, test me now in this. I'll open up the windows of heaven and pour out, room, pour out blessing there's not room enough to contain. But I do not yet see it. So are you going to stop obeying him? Just like we do not yet see everything under our feet, we're going to. There's a great verse in Hebrews where it says, be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherited the promise. Promises. So, anyway, let's prepare to uh, continue to worship the Lord with our giving. And when I close this prayer, again, remain, uh, remain uh, where you are until the ushers come and dismiss you by row. And if you'd be kind enough to make your way outside as quickly as possible, Living Word Family, ch- family Church, Familyship, Living Word Familyship. I'm thinking of Living Word Fellowship. There used to be a church called that here in uh, St. Joe. Living Word Family Church is a COVID-free zone. We walk in the healing and protection of God, but we love one another. We love the brethren. We love our neighbors, and we are going to go outside rather than gather. Let's go outside where we can get the fresh air and social distancing involved while we walk in faith. Those things can absolutely be compatible. Amen. Are you ready to worship the Lord with your giving? Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you for All of your promises, thank you for everything you've done in our lives, everything you've promised to do, and give us the faith and the strength to continue walking in belief until we see these things manifested in our lives. And now, as always, Lord, it's a privilege to give into the work of your kingdom. We thank you for every way which you've provided for us and count it an honor to return a portion of that back to you in accordance with your commands and your expectations. And we give not just obediently, Lord, we give cheerfully, we give expectantly, knowing that you are a God who fulfills his promises and we expect to see it given back to us. We expect to see it multiplied back to us, Father, so we can give again and continue the advance of your kingdom and enjoy bread for the eater and sow the seed that you've given us as sowers. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you give. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.